Hey, Coast. I'm Ben Leroy. And I'm Jason Buckholtz. And you are listening to Collaborocast. How's it going, Jay? I'm doing very well. How about yourself? It's a, a, a double beanie day, I see. It is. I think that the winter months provide ample opportunity for double beanie days. Although, if I could confess something, and if all of the, I don't want to hear all the chit-chat, people would just calm down for a second. I would like to point out that as far as Wisconsin winters go, this one so far has been pretty mild. It's supposed to get up to 50 today. In my youth, we didn't get 50 in December, but here we are. How's things in the Bay Area? Yeah, I'm sure that's got to be pleasant on a today basis, but kind of Absolutely. terrifying if you <laughs> pull out a little bit. So just, you know, don't pull out. Just What do we got on uh, this week's episode? We are going to continue our discussion of memoir. Uh, a very frequent question that we get or a... a, a bucket of questions. I guess there are several questions when this, within this are about the veracity of memoir and what the memoirist's responsibility is to the truth and how to oftentimes people are writing memoirs about things that happened 10, 20 years ago. And, and they're writing about a time that may have, for whatever reason, been kind of a cloudy experience to live through and the reliability of the memory to fill in all of the gaps might not be there. Right. And um, our memories are are fallible. And when you were seven, going through whatever you went through at seven, you probably didn't realize that you were going to need to write about that 30 years later, and you probably were not taking notes or or recording. Yeah. So there are a number of, of reconstructive tactics that, that memoirists can use to, to get their stories on the page. And... Um, we're not going to be talking so much about the the tactics themselves as we are about the the ethics around it and just kind of how different different things to consider as a as an aspiring memoirist. Why don't you go ahead? Let's let's start talking about it. All right. Well, there and I'm are going to start taking notes because I might want to include this in a future memoir. <laughs> We're recording. Oh yeah, this is Good. this is the my memory's garbage. <laughs> my memory is garbage, and my note taking is only slightly better. So probably good that there's going to be an actual recording of it. Just just record it all. And in fact, that is that has been argued that there, so there are there are no real right or wrong answers here. Um, there are are some who would argue for a a, a journalistic level of of integrity where where everything is carefully lots of notes are taken recordings so that as you are rewriting scenes you're being absolutely 100% truthful and accurate to to what happened um there are others other very successful memoirists who don't think that the the genre should be held to to such a high standard um, it, because I think that it's almost kind of a blending, right, of of fiction and personal recollection. Or if that's not the spoken part out loud, it's at least kind of the implied part inside. I think some some people take that approach, certainly. And I think that there are a number of right ways to do it. 
I think that there are some some classically bad ways of going about doing it. And um, we have a, a special guest here in the studio to discuss that, Mr. George Santos. Well, hello, George. To, to discuss <laughs> some of the worst uh, case scenarios. I, wait, I'm sorry. I'm getting the Caitlin on the producers letting me know that George's microphone apparently isn't working. And so technical difficulties, we'll try to do what we can to get George or, on, or so, or so he says. I mean, yeah. who who really knows? Who knows? <laughs> um, current events aside, there was a a famous historical case in 2006. Uh, a lot of listeners might recollect the book "A Million Little Pieces" James by James Fry. Fry. Mm-hmm. Um, 2006, famously championed by Oprah back when her book club was a big major thing um and then turned out that he had just fabricated vast swaths of it and and really that ended in a santos-esque public disgrace with him being there's our there's our my cat just popped up over my shoulder and that's our special guest today i think um george santos does necessarily have the ability to transform into a cat when needed I think that was on his resume. I believe it was. <laughs> I think, yeah. So I don't know if that was going to be fine. part of your discussion, but I remember that that James Fry and I think some people said Frey. I don't remember because my memory is fallible. I remember that at the time there had been some discussion about his agent and publisher trying to figure out which slot the book should be published in, and that perhaps somebody, maybe the author himself had wanted it to be a novel and it was encouraged that it come out as nonfiction. Yeah, I don't remember I don't remember the nuances and the details, but uh, however the decision was made, it was touted as a memoir. And in this context, when you are on the bookshelf with the big memoir sign above it, People are going to expect the truth. They're going to expect that the things that are in there are things that actually happened. And uh, it's it really is a betrayal of trust when that turns out not to be the case. Now, does that mean that you have to write completely truthfully and accurately to those journalistic standards? No, you don't. But there have been, there are, there are, and this is where I tend to fall. I, I think that there there are some voices out there that would say, if you're going to fudge things, if you're going to create, say, composite characters, or if you're going to take 10 conversations that happened and compress them into one conversation, that is okay as long as you're upfront about it, as long as you as long as you say upfront, this is this is this is what I did. And I think that as long as you, the author, do that, I think you have a lot of latitude. I think that you have a lot of latitude to to make shifts like that and maintain trust, maintain the reader's trust. As soon as if you're reading a memoir, as soon as you start feeling like something isn't true, like there's just a whiff of BS in there, then the whole rest of it's going to fall apart. This is not a, you know, this is not a reliable author. This is not a reliable narrator. They're telling me one thing. This is a waste of my time. I'm out. 
if you're upfront about it and so i'm gonna what i'd like to do is so i went through all the memoirs on my shelf and i found that only it's kind of disappointingly only a third of them had notes up front about the author's process so um i'm gonna i'm gonna read two of those because these two memoirists chose kind of different I don't know what the word is, but the, the kind of different spots on that continuum between journalistic nonfiction and and fiction. Um, the first is a, a book that we talked about last week, Wild by Cheryl Strayed. And she uh, has a very brief paragraph, uh, an author's note that appears um, before even the title page. So you get the table of contents and then you come across this author's note. To write this book, I relied upon my personal journals, researched facts when I could, consulted with several of the people who appear in the book, and called upon my own memory of these events and this time of my life. I have changed the names of most, but not all, of the individuals in this book, and in some cases I also modified identifying details in order to preserve anonymity. There are no composite characters or events in this book. I occasionally omitted people and events, but only when that omission had no impact on either the veracity or the substance of the story. Okay. That's, that's she, good. Yeah. So I see something like that. I'm like, okay, fine. I'll, you know, I'm, what's the second one you had? The second one is our mutual friend and my neighbor, Joe Clifford from his memoir, junkie love. Um, this is a very powerful book, 2013, and I would I would recommend it. It's it's um, riveting. Uh, Joe's is a bit longer, and I, I love this. I actually I I had read this when I first read this book. Now that you and I have been thinking about memoir a little more, we're working with a number of clients with Collaborist right now, where we are really sorting through these issues and talking about the, the real nuances and, and details of memoir writing. I, now that we've been making this series of podcasts, I've been, went back and I wanted to see it. And so I, I reread this morning and I, I, I really love the approach that Joe took. A bit longer, so bear with me here. Over the years, I've published several excerpts in literary magazines, journals, e-zines, and quarterlies, giving readings in bookstores, at festivals and fairs, on NPR. People seem to like it, but the question is always the same. Is this story true? And the answer is, I don't know. That's not a total cop-out. Police and prosecutors will tell you when it comes to trying criminal cases, eyewitness testimony is extremely unreliable and hard to hang a conviction on. You can't trust your memory of what you had for breakfast this morning, let alone a felony you may have witnessed. My friend Rich and I grew up together in Connecticut, diehard baseball fans. He likes the Red Sox. I bleed Yankee pinstripe. We both vividly recall the summer of 1983 when Dave Rigetti no-hit Boston. It was the 4th of July. Bright, sunny New England day. We were hanging out, swimming. Only he remembers hearing bad news in my backyard pool. I remember rejoicing at his cousin's cottage 30 miles away. We can't both be right. Junkie Love covers the 10 or so years I spent on the Skid Row streets of San Francisco and traversing the lost highways of America. The overall arc of crimes, arrests, drugs, and dirty sex is fairly accurate, as are the prevailing themes of fall and redemption. But is it true? That's tougher to answer. 
and not in any philosophy 101 what is truth sense. I mean, I think I'm telling the truth. Except, of course, when I'm not. For the sake of storytelling, I combine trips, conflate characters, make up names, rearrange the order of events to streamline action and elicit the greatest emotional response. When enough details get changed, nonfiction can no longer ethically be called that. And once it's fiction, you're working with a new set of specs. Or in the words of my dear writer friend, Andrea Askovitz, never let the facts get in the way of a good story. I can tell you this. When I do outright lie, it tends to be about the little things, like there was a different song playing on the radio when she broke my heart, or the car I stole was actually a truck. The major events and really disturbing scenes, the ones that make you gasp and shudder and feel like you need to take a shower, where you say to yourself as you scrub and scratch at the dirt that won't come off, no way that is true. 99.9% .9 of the time, it happened just the way I say it did. Of course, one of the problems with the junkie memoir is it's hard to trust the narrator. I am better now, but drug addicts are notorious liars and your mental faculties are, at best, skewed. I remember copping one San Francisco afternoon with my buddy, Tom Pitts, and pointing out a cute kid standing across the street in a karate outfit. Hey, I said, look, a little black belt. Tom panned over, squinting, then back to me, puzzled. Dude, he said, that's a fire hydrant. False memories, misinterpretation, shifting points of view and suspect agendas, ulterior motives, blunt head trauma, poor nutrition, and poly substance abuse. So much shit gets in the way of trying to tell the truth. Sometimes it's easier if you don't bother classifying it and just move on. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. I mean, that's so startlingly, strikingly honest to me that I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm on board. I get it. I, I totally can read this with the knowledge of how it has been presented to me. I I agree, and I I and I think it's you know his openness and and vulnerability with that is it's like I I trust him, and I I am happy to let this continue to be a memoir, and I I guess I would read it for not as a as a as a chronicle of events but as the 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 story of his emotional truth his his you know what everything that he went through like you said the the the, the fall and the redemption and i i i read that and then go through it and i wouldn't think again about whether i believed it or not i would just i would just like he said just move on keep but give but only because he said all that right i would like to read one more author introduction it's from our dear friend melissa falavino's collection tomboyland and if you haven't read it collaborist i encourage it author's note this is a work of nonfiction, which relies in no small part on memory my own and others that most fallible and unreliable of narrators. As such, and with the help of extensive research, interviews, and fact-checking, I've attempted to tell all of the stories in this book, my own and others, as honestly as possible, to tell the truth as far as I could find it. Some names and details have been changed to protect the people in these pages. So again, I get the earnest attempt to say, 
this is what I think. And you probably do, especially if you're someone in this situation, you're not trying to get every detail correct at some point becoming boxed in by 100% certainty of the facts would make it impossible to tell a story that anyone actually cares about. So here we go. Yeah, I think that's a great example too. And I, all of these are are building trust with the reader, building that relationship that will then, we've talked about the contract with the reader when we, in, in fiction before on this podcast series and, and how important that is. And I think for a memoirist, because there are, you know, with fiction, it obviously works quite differently, but I, in, 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 in memoir, it's almost more important to really establish that. Well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to open up a, that can of worms. Yeah. I'm not going to make it a, a, a comparison. Wait, 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 wait. George was, George was saying something about uh, his microphone's cutting out. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I really, on a different episode, would love to get producer Caitlin on to also talk about her journey with this because she is somebody who has been a very fact-based reporter who is also going to be writing a memoir. And I'm wondering what her approach is going to be and how to handle that. So in a future episode, when she is along that journey, I would like to bring her on to discuss. She just put some questions here um she asks is there a line then how far do you fictionalize or is there really no line and what matters is how and that you disclose it and i don't think i don't have a definitive answer for that i i think for the 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 last question i do think disclosure i do think disclosure matters but on the other hand the the only the majority of the memoirs, I was looking this morning, looking through my bookshelf, the majority of them did not have a note at all. There's no disclosure whatsoever. And I remember reading all of those books without questioning it. Do you know if they were published, the majority of them pre or post um, One Million Little Pieces scandal? Um, pre. The so I wonder if that was... before. I wonder if that's part of it, is that that book was enough of an industry changer that people felt more compelled to say that for fear of being called out for that's some sort of That's a great observation, actual... because these two, the two that I read from today were both post-2006. Most of the others, I'm thinking, you know, some of them were... Some of the memoirs that I mentioned studying in that first MFA class I had, which was... 20 years ago now so that was a few years before the million little pieces um tinker I, at pilgrim creek was another one of them annie dillard but that's i think that's quite a i think she wrote that when she was in her early 20s um oh yeah 1974 i think 1974 was before 2006 george yeah. what, no george george says it wasn't george says oh it was okay yeah something about time travel okay i, <laughs> I guess because george is definitely a reliable narrator and so if george tells me that yeah i believe it <laughs> for sure i've and this is maybe fodder for another episode but so much of what memoir is to me 
is not the transference of information as much as it is the transference of emotion. And I could make a philosophical argument, and I don't know that I I don't know how long I could defend it, but I would make a philosophical argument that if what I'm trying to convey to you is the emotion, for you to get it like I had it would require that you have all of the context leading up to a particular scene to understand its heft, why it's important. And that is prohibitive as a storytelling mechanism in something like memoir, because you'd have to just be getting into, well, to know Bob, you'd have to know that I met Bob while working at this warehouse and to know about why I was working at the warehouse, you'd have to know about my high school senior year. Like it's, it would just create this whole thing. So I'm wondering if part of creating emotional shorthand in a memoir so that the story is tellable and wrangleable, uh, you do need to do that condense and it's almost like making genetically modified food. It's genetically modified books to create an emotion that is quicker and easier to transfer from writer to reader. Yeah, I think that's that's a good angle too. Um, and it's it's I think that the line between nonfiction and fiction is it's movable. It is not I don't think it is it's not set in stone. It's not in any one place for all the readers and writers. I think that there are I think it I think it it varies from memoir to memoir and and from reader to reader there will be different takes on what one accepts and what one rejects in terms of veracity and if if you're talking about emotional transference I can't help but but hear you say that and note the paintings behind you I think that if that it, things can get abstracted until they're until they're I think that that's one of the, this is, again, not for this episode, but, you know, the emotional transference power of painting, you, you get, you, you, it, as you're going from, from the transference of information to the transference of emotion, I think you move right out of the entire art form of writing and get into poetry and then you go through music and then you get into painting. And then, you know, I think that there's, I think that there's one massive continuum and i think that that's what makes art art is the I, fact that, that is, it is an attempt to to transfer those yeah, emotions yeah and that is the base of study of baxter montgomery the compositional physics teacher from the middle west who perhaps might join us on a future episode but the impact of art on emotion what what that is what the the composition being the painting or the song or the short story what is its emotional impact on its on its witness? So yeah, that's a whole that is another whole series of podcast episodes that we could do. Sounds like we're now planning out into 2026. So how do we oh, wrap hey, this up? George and George just told me that he's going to be president in 2026 and will give us some sort of congressional medal of honor to to cover that. Okay, great. Right. Okay. Oh, thanks, George. Cool. Yeah. 
um, how do we wrap this up? How do we how do we boil this down as a piece of advice for the the aspiring memoirist? Oh, I would you know say what? actually before we do that, there is another another related question that I get often that I wanted to address, and that is. Okay. The legality of of names in particular, libel, libel laws and all that. And, um, you know, can you to what extent can you write about another person? Um, how, how to what extent can you portray someone else in a, in a bad light? And, and there are a lot of different considerations there. And we're not lawyers. We don't can't expound upon the legal definition of libel and what can get you sued for it and what can have you lose a lawsuit for it. Um, but I get, I, I, I have a lot of, I, I get a lot of writers asking me what they should do. And, and it, it, this is America and people sue each other for anything all the time. I would say that nothing you ever do will make you immune from being sued. Um, I think that the bar, though, is very high for losing said lawsuit. Uh, always things to consult with a, a, a lawyer about. But there's nothing illegal about writing about other people. There's nothing illegal about telling your story. There's nothing illegal about telling a truthful story that paints somebody else in a bad light. That doesn't mean that you are immune from getting in trouble for it because people sue each other all the time for all sorts of things and the legal system does not work perfectly. So a lot of a lot of memoirists will take care in wanting to preserve their relationships with living people or the memories of people who who may be gone but appear in the memoir and so they'll change names, they'll they'll change things around. Um there, you know, there are legal considerations as well, but um, you know, the the short answer is that I think it's a very high bar to. I, I think you have to really make some stuff up about somebody else in order to actually lose a lawsuit. Um, but where, what exactly that line is, I don't know. And before that, the risks you're taking are not so much legal as they are ruining some relationships. So that said, how do we summarize all this? And I think that the, the bottom line for me would be the disclosure for memoir. I think that, you know, in, in the examples of Joe and Cheryl here, we see two different approaches where Joe has taken much more liberty in rearranging events and creating composite events and composite characters and, and conversations where Cheryl has, has done a very minimal job of, of making those modifications. But I, I would read both of these with equal trust because I know what I'm getting into up front. I'm going into it with open eyes and um, that was not the case with A Million Little Pieces and that's why that went sideways and that was not the case with the uh congressman from long island and that's why that went sideways so just be upfront be upfront be forthright and then you once you do that you really have an opportunity to tell the story that you want and and get at the things that you really want to get about things that you want to write about
All right. Thank you for that. We'll put some links in the episode description for people to do some more reading on their own about these topics and chime in in the comments, whatever your conclusions are. Can I get get Melissa to come and join us? She can tell us about this firsthand. Melissa, what are you doing next Thursday? Yeah, I actually, I will reach out to her as soon as this is done. Excellent. should we should we move on to uh, updating a story from last week? Sure. Okay. Last week we laid out a claim, or we laid out an offer to have people write some flash fiction about an experience at the DMV. And so far, we've gotten one one entry, and I think Jason is capable of of reading it and perhaps setting up the story too. I can do that. Um, <laughs> this entry came from my mom, Jadine. <laughs> Let me find it here. So she wrote a, a half a page here on the DMV, and um, turns out it's it's memoir. Huh. Look at that. So um, yeah, I'll get Tying a couple paragraphs here to whatnot. read. Thanks, mom. The DMV in 1963. I just couldn't understand why my illiterate paper son grandfather insisted that I, a recently licensed 16-year-old, escort him to our local DMV. For as long as I could remember, he had been driving the 60 miles to San Francisco to buy groceries and supplies for his popular Chinese restaurant. We enjoyed those special outings whenever I was able to join him for the adventure. I guess I had always assumed he had a driver's license. His insistence that I chauffeur him that particular afternoon seemed a bit odd, but I quickly agreed. So there we sat and sat and sat, until finally his number appeared at window whatever it was. As we approached, the clerk greeted us with a broad smile. He asked for name, address, phone number, and then administered the cursory eye exam. He then shuffled paperwork, secured the applicant's signature, the only two American words my grandfather could write, and then promptly issued a temporary license to Harry Lee. All this without any verbal exchanges or a written test. I was flabbergasted. How had this happened? I had studied and sweated to pass the 30-item exam only a few weeks earlier, and now my grandfather was walking out without testing at all? As perplexed as I was, I knew enough to keep my questions to myself. It was only after we exited the building did I dare ask him. He gave me a sly smile and said, Good customer. He liked me. <laughs> excellent awesome good stuff mom i yeah. love that not just because you're my mom but because no. it's it's an event at the dmv but it links to so many other things there are relationships there's history there's immigration there's yeah generations there's there's so many things she could not one. possibly have known that that assignment was going to uh, come up and we could not possibly have known that she would write such an amazing flash fiction, which isn't even really flash fiction, just writing about her time at the DMV. So Jadine has kind of set the bar for the rest of you. We are going to move into doing weekly writing prompts on the website over at Collaborate. Org. And uh, 
we're going to set something up so that you can write yours. They'll be available on the website. Other people can chime in with comments. We're going to build a little bit of community with writers and reviewers. You can do both if you want, but you will have the ability to earn um, free query letter reviews, free intro pages to your book review, this free uh, Zoom calls where we can discuss your work in progress. Just want you to participate and flex your creative muscles over there as we continue to build out this community. Let Jadeen be your guide. For story. For community. Come